In my most recent newsletter, I talked about byproducts, things that I do on a regular basis that have byproducts in output. For example, I talked about how reading books automatically makes me want to talk about books. So if I turn on a microphone and I just talk about books after I read them, then suddenly I have a podcast as a byproduct. And there's another byproduct that I produce that I've kind of been, I don't want to say I've been ignoring it, but I've been kind of trying to figure out how it worked or how it could work. And that is what you're listening to right now. All the thoughts that I have from working with apps and technology and trying to build systems to be able to create things, all of this stuff creates byproducts. I have reams and reams, metaphorically, reams and reams of notes about trying to figure out this stuff. And I, I know that these thoughts are of interest to people because when I post about these things on X, generally these are the things that I get the most responses to. Even though I'm not involved in the tech or PKM world in any way, really. So the automatic assumption there always was, well, why don't you take those and make them into posts on X, which my thing with X is, and social media in general, I don't want to create more noise and I don't want to create more overflow. So I want to, I want to take these raw thoughts that I have and then, okay, how can I shape this? And then you start thinking about what the best format is to make a post engageable. And I don't want to do that stuff because I don't want my job to become posting. I want my job to be thinking. So that's not an automatic byproduct. That's taking a byproduct and then processing it. And I don't want to do the processing part, or at least I want the processing part to be minimal so that I can focus on the main and the most important part, which is doing my important work. And that's work that is important to me. So that just doesn't work for me. I find that social media is best for just engaging with people to actually use it for what is named social media. So for a while I contemplated, well, maybe I should, you know, since it's about apps and stuff, maybe I should be making a YouTube channel. People are very successful with these kind of YouTube channels. I often watch this kind of content and I have done that stuff before and I did quite well. Actually, I had a channel that was doing quite well before I decided not to do it anymore. And the thing is, I just, I've tried many times. I just don't get the same satisfaction from video unless I'm making narrative video. Unless I'm making like movies or short movies and stuff like that. I don't get the same satisfaction from it. But I do love podcasting. I do love listening to podcasts. I love the intimacy of podcasts. I like just listening, walking and listening. And I like the talking process. And I like sitting in front of this microphone. And I like having these headphones on. And I like hearing my voice in the headphones. I like everything about the process. And I know it's a huge trend right now for people to turn on the camera when they do their podcasts, but then you're down to the whole race of, well, is my camera good enough? Oh, I need to edit this. And I need, I don't want to go through all that. And I really think sometimes some things should just be audio. I like the idea when something comes out, it comes out and that's the form it comes out in. It can be frustrating at times to see a book that I want to read my process with reading generally is I listen to something as an audiobook first to see 
If it's something I want to sit down and actually read carefully, and if it is, then I will go buy the paper book. It can be frustrating at times when there's a book that I want to check out and there's no audiobook version of it. It only comes in paper book. There's not even a Kindle version of it. It just comes in paper book. It can be frustrating because it goes against my process. But there's also something I really respect about that. And I kind of feel like an audio-only podcast is that type of thing. It is that type of statement. And especially when you're dealing with a topic like technology, talking about PKM, personal knowledge management, talking about note-taking, talking about apps, talking about devices, all of these modern things, it can be interesting to think about how do you do that non-visually? Because all of those things are so visual. And I think that's why I want to start here. What I want this podcast to be is something that I was looking for that I, I find here and there, but I don't find often enough. People just talking about life with personal knowledge management, with note-taking, with apps, with devices, not tips and tricks, not instruction, not systems, not education, all of which I think are important, and once again, all of which I consume. But there's another side of that, which is, I don't know, maybe it's the nerdier side of it, in fact. The nerdier side of it, in fact, being talking about essentially the philosophy of it. Though philosophy is a heavy word <laughs> heavy word to use because it's an insinuation of, you know, Plato and stuff like that. That's not what I mean by philosophy. I mean, philosophy, just in the most simple term of the word, the way of thinking about something. And what is the way of thinking about these things? And I feel like the way of thinking about these kind of topics is not a finalized statement. It is an ongoing evolution. It's an ongoing struggle. It is, as the title of the show says, at times a disaster. You're overloaded. And that's what a lot of these things promise us, right? To take this overload and make at least some of it manageable. And the process of doing that is a process of tweaking and adapting and changing and modifying and optimizing. That is a continual and ongoing process. And the only tool that I know that captures that type of process is a journal. And I don't mean necessarily a paper journal. It could be a digital journal. It could be an audio journal. It could be a video journal. But the idea of something that goes on over time and just captures things chronologically you know, a book isn't necessarily that. A book is, here are these ideas. I've organized them to optimize the effect, you know, so that you learn this topic and now you learn this topic and you had to learn topic one and two so that you understand topic three. That's why they're in that order. They're not typically written in a chronological order. Obviously, I'm talking about nonfiction books and not books that are printed journals or diaries. So that's what I want this to be. I want this to be an ongoing travelogue. You know, that's I'm, I'm not coming at these things as an expert. I'm coming at, at these things as a fellow traveler, as someone who is discovering this as we go along. And that's what I intend to do. I intend to share the journey. So for those of you who are already subscribed to Creative Isolation on Substack, you might be wondering why this is connected to the other things that I do. I believe it's because 
everything on the Substack is about process. The newsletter is about my creative process. The podcast, Read or Die a Slave, is about books. It's about the input, the ideas, and the thoughts that are coming in, which feeds my process. So you have output, you have input, but there's one piece of that that's been missing, and that's the logistics in between, the technical details, the actual process. And that's what I hope this will cover. And I hope in some way this will be of value to those of you who are already subscribed. Having said all that, in order to make this an ongoing journey or travel log, we need a sort of a basis, a place to start. You know, I can't just go back to the beginning of my journey and start there. And this isn't the beginning of my journey with these things. I'm in the middle of it. We're starting in the middle. But what I can do is, let me take you back to the beginning of my podcasting, very briefly. When I first did a podcast, I had a co-host. We had no idea what we were doing. I mean, the first episode was recorded just on an iPhone. And back then, the iPhones weren't, weren't as good as recording. Now, it might not sound that scary. But it was through earbuds and an iPhone. That's how we recorded, and we just had a conversation, and there was no form to it, no structure to it. I think it started out with, hey, man, we didn't really know what the show was going to be about. We just knew we wanted to have a podcast, and what ended up happening was it started to develop its own terms, and ironically, as I think about it now, most of the terms that developed in that first podcast are still themes that I, that I deal with now. We talked about creativity. We talked about technology, working with technology, the frustrations with technology, trying to get it to do the things we want to do. It was a weird mix, the show, and it's exactly what I do now, a mix between creativity and then this more technological aspect of it. I wrote a newsletter not too long ago, and I don't remember the titles of my newsletters very well, but it was something about the the conflict or the apparent conflict between the artist and the nerd. And there's a conflict inside of myself that both seem to be at odds with each other when I think about things uh, in the stereotypical way, that the artist is supposed to be not very technological and and the nerd is not supposed to be super artistic. And I think we know that's not true. So there's a weird intersection between these those two, and I, I think I, I often inhabit that space. And I still inhabit it the way I did when I did that first podcast. One of the big rabbit hole themes that kept coming up that we would engage in over and over again, my old co-host, was switching note apps. Switching from Evernote to Apple Notes. This ongoing quest to find the one that does everything we need it to do. One note, all of these back in the day, all of the note apps that were available, we went through them all. I think at one point I certainly did. What I didn't realize at the time was that what I was going through was not something unique to me. It might've been then, but now I think it's very common to see this continual app switching we see the power in these tools, but we can't ever seem to find, some of us, can't ever seem to find home base. Ah, 
I finally found the one where there's no friction and there's no there's no obstacle that we can't tackle within the confines of how the the app functions. And I guess in a way that's kind of what this podcast aims to chronicle. Not continual app switching because I'm not continually app switching. I am continually moving things around and figuring out how things work in them. But it is an appropriate time to start this podcast because I've just gone through one of these cycles. And they're different than they were before. When we used to switch apps back in the time that I was talking about previously on the other podcast, you would move all your stuff to the new app. And that would take weeks. And then you'd start using that app. And then, oh my God, you'd find a problem. Well, you go through that enough times, you learn to just start using a new app and see what's there. What are the problems with it before you move a bunch of stuff over there? But the problem with that, what you, what you end up with is, well, I've got, you know, two weeks of stuff in that app. I have three months of stuff in that app. I have a year of stuff in that app because you never go through the import process. So I've gone through this recently playing with a bunch of apps. And I think if we're going to start, then maybe we should start there. Maybe we should start with what I've just recently gone through, because I think it's going to give us a good jumping off place to move forward. I'm mixing my metaphors. I love to mix metaphors. It's awful. It's an awful habit. So here's my recent journey. And tone wise, by the way, this is, this is how the podcasts are going to be. It's just me talking. One of the apps that I've played with a lot recently is Heptabase. In fact, I was very confident not only in Heptabase, but in the people running Heptabase, so much so that I decided, you know, I'm going to pay for a year of it. I believe it was $60 a year. I'm going to pay for a year of it. And part of what I was hoping to do was to lock myself into an app to prevent myself from switching because of sunk cost fallacy. Sunk cost fallacy being that you assume something has to have value because you spent money on it. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage, which is what I was trying to do. And Heptabase is an amazing app. I mean, the development speed over there is incredible. Previously, I'd used other apps like this. It's essentially Heptabase is what you would call a canvas or infinite canvas or a whiteboard app. It has other aspects to it as well, but that's the heart of it. The heart of it is you have this space and you move cards. You know, you bring in your words inside of a card that are, you know, little boxes. It's different than a mind map. I had never really seen a use for this kind of feature, but something about Heptabase and then watching a couple of Alan Chen's videos, Alan being the founder, watching a couple of his videos about how he uses it to think, sorry, to learn. There's a big distinction here I should make about the way that Heptabase puts themselves out there. They don't say that they are a note-taking app because they're not. They don't even say they're a tool for thinking. They say that they're a tool for learning. So seeing how he was using that to learn started to make me think about things that I do and where I had friction points with apps, all the apps that I'd used before. And I started to see how I could use that canvas feature to do things I couldn't do before. Now, to clarify that a little bit more, let's talk a little bit about my general process. We'll, we'll talk about it in current context, how I work through my process of learning. So I read books. 
we I went through the audiobook and the, the difference between when I listen to something and when I read it. But generally, I take notes on a book when I'm reading it, and I have an index card. I do this manually, analog. I have an index card, and anytime I see something interesting on a page in a book, on that index card, which is in portrait, not landscape, I write down the page number, and I write down just a few words to remind me what on that page I found interesting. Now, there's multiple reasons I do this. Number one, I don't like to mark up books, not because of the whole, oh, they're sacred thing. Rather, I don't like to mark up books because when I go back to a book later and read it, I don't want to know what I thought before. I want to come back to it as a blank slate. So I don't want to see things that I underlined and circled before because those are the things I'm going to pay attention to again. The next time I read a book, I'm hoping to notice things I didn't notice the first time. So that's the first reason I do this. The second reason I do this, the benefits of, of analog, plus it's just it's so much easier to just have a card, use it as a bookmark, and have the note-taking device right there inside the book, right where you want it. And the reason I only put a couple words is because my hope is that not all of the notes I make are going to be actually worth actually making into a full note. What I mean by that is sometimes we capture things when we're taking book notes that we think are important at the time, but they're really not. They're not the things that really, you know, the the high signal stuff. So by doing this, when I get to the end of the book, I pull out the index card. Usually by then it's, it's probably two index cards. And I go, for example, I have one in front of me right now. I pick up this book and I will go to page 237. And the only clue I've given myself is no context. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look over that page. I'm going to reread that page and go, what am I referring to here? So this also allows me to re-experience that page of the book, which is, it's, it's kind of a cheat <laughs> to reread the book almost immediately. You're not rereading the whole book, but you're rereading the parts that you thought were valuable when you read it the first time. When I find the part that I'm referring to, sometimes I look at it and I go, yeah, that's still valuable. Now I'm going to take that. I'm going to put that into an outline in some kind of app. The ones that don't have value anymore, I just, I'll leave them on that card. If I ever decide I need to find it again, it's on that card, but it can be abandoned. It can be let go. And then when I'm done and I go through all of those, I have an outline in a, in a digital app. And all I've done with the outline on the digital app now is I've taken those and I've fully expressed the idea. I generally, I'd say nine times out of 10, if not more, I do not take quotes. The only time I take quotes is when something is either I love the way it's worded, you know, I'm saving it because of the wording, or I'm saving it because if I were to try to restate this idea, it would sound exactly like the quote. So I might as well just take the quote. Most of the time I'm taking it and I'm putting it in my words. A lot of people in the PKM community are very familiar with this idea, the atomic note idea. All I'm doing is taking those and putting them into this outline. Then what I would do is I would move each of them as an individual card onto a whiteboard. And as I do that, what I'm paying attention to is groupings. I'm no longer paying attention. I don't have the 
structure of the book in front of me. All I have is a list of the ideas. I can ignore the structure of the book and start to see how the pieces of the book fit together for me. Because once again, I'm not taking everything from the book. I'm just taking, I'm picking and choosing things from the book. So the structure here is going to be different. Something from chapter one for me might relate to something in chapter 57. If it's a really long book, that's a really long book. All I'm doing is grouping things, letting them kind of congeal. And then when I'm done, I'm going to put a square around them and name the grouping. You know, this, this grouping over here is about marketing on a small scale. Okay. Now I have all of those. What I do inside of those groupings is I start to move the cards around inside the groupings into an order. Well, this idea leads into this idea. This idea is an example of this idea. This idea leads in this direction and I start mapping them. And this process is when I really start to understand the book. Because before that, this is one of the problems I have, sorry, to apps like Readwise and Omnivore and stuff like that matter. One of the problems I have with those kind of apps is having used them, all three of those at some point, and think they make an excellent product. But one of the problems for me with those apps is my thinking is still fragmented. And I'm still dealing with other people's words just because I've highlighted things. And just because I'm reviewing those highlights doesn't mean I understand them. The understanding of them comes with the context and the context. When you pull it out of the book, it no longer has the context of the book of the page of the paragraph. It has to have a new context. And that new context is what I'm trying to build here. So I'm trying to take these and I'm trying to shape them into a new context so that I understand how they work together. And this is where I begin to understand what I got from the book. My purpose here, as I said, is not to take everything out of the book, just to take the things that resonate with me. So what I'm doing here is I'm not trying to map what this book is about. I'm trying to map what this book means to me or what ideas I got out of this book and what they mean to me. That's the first step in my process. After that, I would probably take those, I would take that map and I would make a new outline. And that outline would be structured with the groupings and all of that. So that if I ever went to that outline, I could review that. So I could either go to the visual review or I could go to the outline structure review. The purpose of having both is you could reference the text um, based outline in other places in your note taking app. Whereas the visual one is there for visual purposes. Now, this is where the value of Heptabase starts to really became, become apparent to me, or the value of apps like Heptabase. Having gone through an analog phase, learning to do analog Zettelkasten from Scott Shepard and by proxy from Nicholas Luhmann, I started to understand the value of the sections in a Zettelkasten box. Now, the way Shepard teaches it, he uses the academic disciplines. That was not my way of doing it. I went with the way that Lumen did it, which would be to create his own categories. Each section in the box is a category. And these categories are based on projects. So for Lumen, if he was going to write an article for an academic magazine or an academic journal, 
about a small government in European municipalities or something like that, he would create a section for that. And then all of the notes and everything he did would go in there. And he could reference them throughout his box, but that's how he would group things. So for me, I started to think about what are the topics that matter to me? And one of the ways I did that was to start look at type of notes that I already had, the type of quotes that I'd already taken. Here's the first category. The first category in the box was note-taking. So anything that I learned about note-taking, I'd put in that section. And then I got to a point where, oh, well, this this isn't about note-taking. This is about, what is this about? I guess this is about technology. Okay, I need a section on technology. So every time I get a note that was about technology, it would go in there. And then I go to another point, I'm like, well, this is about dogs. You know, I have a dog. I care about my dog. I want to learn things about dog psychology and dog physiology and dog health. I need a category for dogs. And that's how I built out my topics. And I ended up with about 50. I don't remember the exact number right now. Those are a big deal to me because ideally what I think can happen is over time, as I build up things in those topics, those are going to become things that can become projects like Lumen. They could become books. So... My second part is to now look at all of these cards that I've taken and say, what topics of my 50 topics, which does this fit into? And oftentimes it's not just one. You know, this might be about economics and this might also be about small towns. So I would tag it with both of those. And each of those topics ideally would have their own board. So I'd have a board about small towns. And I would go over and I would grab all the cards that are tagged with small towns and pull it into that board. And I would do the exact same process again, allow these things to group, start moving them around to understand how they relate to each other. And over time, as I add to that, by reading more and more books, eventually I start to congeal and to understand the topic in the way that I understood the book from mapping this stuff. All of that came to me from using Heptabase. Very powerful framework for me. When I go on to do my other podcast, Reader Die Slave, when I go on to do the deep dive episodes, I will be pulling from my canvas mappings of the books that I read for that. So one of the things about Heptabase that I really like, that I think is unique, as far as I know, in these type of apps, if I have the small towns map and I pull out a right sidebar and I say, show me all of the cards that I have that are tagged small towns. What I want to do, as I said, is I want to pull all these into this, into this board, which is very easy to do, but it is something that I'm adding to over time. When I sit down to make that board for small towns, I don't have all of my research. This is something that I might be adding to for years. So how do I know which cards that are showing up on the right hand here have already been added to the board? You know, especially once I get past there being 10 or 20 cards on that board, when there's hundreds on there, how do I know which ones I've added and which ones I haven't? Now, theoretically, you could say, well, if you're learning so much, you should remember. Okay, but I did say there are 50 topics, and this is over many years. Well, Heptabase has a feature that when you grab a card and you drag it onto the board that you're looking at, the card on the right stays there. You know, it's still visually there as well as on the board but it grays out. So what that means is you could go into a board like small towns, pull up all the cards, tag small towns, and then just look and see which ones are not grayed out 
or faded. It's not really graying out. It dims it. Oh, this one is still bright. Okay, I need to add that to the board. I need to add that to the board. That's a new one. Okay. Wonderful feature. Wonderful feature. That's one of the things about Heptabase. Is they put that kind of thinking into this. And it's because that, as I said, that is their main feature. Everything else is an add-on, but that's the heart of the app. So that's the stuff they really, really, really dialed. So I tried for a while to use Heptabase for everything. I tried to do my writing in it, and I don't know why. There's there's nothing technically that I could say about why I didn't enjoy doing the writing in it. I just didn't. It just didn't gel with me. And I, I think I can come to a conclusion about that as we talk about this. But we'll leave it at that right now. So I had Heptabase for a year, tried to use it for everything. Then I started to I started thinking about Obsidian. Obsidian is an app I've used on and off many, many times through the years. In fact, I would say all the times I've gone through these app switches, Obsidian is one that I always seem to return to for at least a little while. Obsidian recently added an infinite canvas feature that they call Canvas. So I started to wonder, how does that compare to what Heptabase is doing? You know, this app that doesn't theoretically cost me anything, Obsidian, can it do all the things that I want this app that cost me $60 a year to do? Now, as I said, $60 a year, not a ton of money, but it was just a question. The main thing about Obsidian and Heptabase, the main difference being one, Heptabase keeps your files in a cloud on their servers, right? Obsidian keeps it on your computer. Now you can sync that using sync features like iCloud, Dropbox, or they have a they have a sync feature that you can purchase from them as well. But you own those files. You can actually physically see the files. You can export from Heptabase. It's just when you have apps where things are connected, interconnected, oftentimes that means what you get as an export isn't exactly one for one, right? You're not going to be able to just grab that and drop it in somewhere and have it function exactly the way it functioned in that app because apps are built on the back end differently. So there's an appeal to, to Obsidian because of those things. So the question is, what about this Canvas feature? Can it live up to it? And I'll cut to the chase here. It doesn't. There's nothing wrong with the Canvas feature. It's a great add-on for somebody using Obsidian, but when you've used Heptabase and then you use Canvas on Obsidian, it can't compare. Once again, this is the difference between the core experience and the add-on experience. The Canvas is the core experience of Heptabase. Everything else is an add-on. The core experience of Obsidian is documents. Canvas is an add-on. So that makes a big difference on how it's structured, how it's structured and how it functions within the context of the rest of the app. Without going too, too deep into this, here are some examples of, of why it doesn't work the same way. I told you about the indication that a, a note had been added to the board. Canvas doesn't have that, which means in order to be able to know which cards I've added to a board, I had to create a sub tag. So for example, I couldn't just tag something small towns. I had to tag it small towns forward slash add. So I know that this is about small towns and I need to add it to that board. And then when I add it to the board, I would just take off the, the sub tag part and just leave it as small towns. It's workable. It's a workaround, but it's friction. And it also means that 
you get that sidebar, that tag side pane, it starts to get cluttered. Even if you collapse them, the thing about it is every time you open that pane, they're going to be expanded. You can't keep that. I couldn't figure out a way to keep the tags collapsed in the side pane. So there's that friction. And when you're working in Heptabase and you add something to a board, you're creating a card. That's it. It's just the moment you click there, the box, you start to put words into it. That's a card. It exists in the system as an entity. Canvas, on the other hand, you can bring in cards. In this case, there would be notes. There's no cards in Obsidian. Everything is a note because it's document-based. You can create a note or you can bring in a pre-existing note or you can add an object to the canvas with text. So it's basically like card that only exists on the canvas, but it doesn't exist in the rest of the system, which means that when you search, the only things that are going to come up in search are things that are made into notes, into separate notes. So anything you add to that canvas that is not a note, search does not know it's there. It does not see it. It also means that you have to go through the process of creating a note every time you add something to a board, which is more clicks than just clicking on there and creating it. And why, why would you want to? Why, you know, why does it matter besides the search thing? Say the search thing wasn't important. Well, if you think about the context, the reason I gave you so much about Heptabase is so you can understand here how it works differently. If I were to do that same process, I were to take those cards, you know, take those notes, I should say, those ideas, so word terms get a little mixy. <laughs> take those ideas from the books and put them onto a canvas in Heptabase. Every time I do that, each of those becomes a card and I can tag them for the topics that I want to add them to. In Obsidian, if I add it, the idea to a canvas, it just exists on that canvas, which means I can't add it to anything else except to copy it, paste it onto a new one which you're not going to do. So in order to be able to add it multiple places, you have to make it into its own individual note. And then you tag it and you add the sub tag. There's just an extra level of friction for working things the way that I want to work them. In addition to that, I started to get into, I had many vaults. <laughs> At first I had two vaults. I had a vault for like personal notes. And then I had a vault for like my learning all the type of stuff that I was doing in Heptabase. The reason for that is because the learning vault was all just my wording of other people's ideas, I didn't mind unleashing AI onto it for it to make connections. There's a plugin called Smart Connections. So I didn't mind that. But then my personal stuff, which is sometimes my journals, locations I've been, things about people in my life, I did not want to unleash that to AI. So I had those as two separate vaults. Then I created another vault for my deconstructionist fiction project. It's a substack called The Thing That Devours Everything. And then I created another one for a book queue, books I wanted to read. And the reason I did this is I wanted to bring in books that I wanted to read and have it kind of mimic the functionality of this app called Napkin. Napkin is like a note-taking app, but it's for small little notes, small short notes, very atomic notes. And when you add them there, it, the, it uses AI to automatically tag all of these things and then connect them to other notes. So I thought what would be cool about that is to bring in books I want to read and have the AI 
tag it so that I could look at the tag pane on the right and see groupings of books and realize, oh, there's topics that I'm interested in that I didn't know I was interested in the topic. Here's 50 books that I want to read about sustainable farming. Whoa, I didn't know I was interested in sustainable farming, but apparently I am. Those type of things, I thought that would be useful. So I had these four vaults and logistically it just becomes a bit of a pain because you don't, like I didn't want to close most of them. So I'd leave them open and I was doing swiping. Now let me, so, okay, which, which screen is that one on? Swipe, 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 swipe. Oh, okay, here, here's vault three. So there was just a lot of logistic friction to work the way I want to work. And what should be stated here again is none of this is criticisms of the app. It's criticisms of how the app functions in my workflow or my proposed workflow. That's all these episodes will ever be about. I wouldn't mess around with an app if I didn't think that there was something of value to it. Which brings me around to another app. That was one of the first apps I ever played with after Evernote. Evernote was my first I'm into this app experience. And after Apple Notes, messing around with Apple Notes for a while, I tried out Notion. This is back when Notion was brand new. They didn't have most of the features they have now. The reason I started looking at Notion, I didn't even really put any notes into Notion this time. The reason I started playing with it is because of the new Q&A feature, which is essentially AI being able to have access to your entire vault. So you could ask it questions and it would respond from your knowledge. And I thought in the context of bringing in notes from all the books, as I was doing with Heptabase and so forth, that could be a very powerful feature. Now it should be said, this can be done in Obsidian with that same smart connections plugin. I just found that the AI interactions with that one were particularly frustrating. I don't think that the smart connections chat feature is very useful. It led me to more frustration than it did to utility. And I think it's just because it's, it's, it's essentially just naked chat GPT, as far as I can tell. It's not trained in a useful way. You know, some of these, these AIs, they need to be trained to use in certain functionalities. And it's still kind of operating in general functionality and there are little quirks. Like for example, you can't just ask it a question about, you have to say in my notes or what do I know? You have to make sure to use these certain key phrases to make sure that it's looking at your notes and not just um, answering from its own knowledge base. So I wanted to play with the new Q and A to see how it measured up. And I started playing around with Notion again and I just within not even a day, realized this just isn't for me. This is just not the way I think. It's too fundamentally different from the way I work. And I just, it was literally friction after friction after friction. You know, it didn't have any of the features that I wanted to do the things the way that I do all the time. And there wasn't enough utility from the things that it had that other apps don't have to justify letting go of those other things. So... Notion just isn't for me, but in playing with Notion, what I did find was it's a really great place for me to post the public book list of all of the books that I've covered on my other podcast. And the reason I like that is because number one, it's really easy to just say, make this public and then it's public. 
but I can put it into a card view and people go in and it's not perfect. You know, it's not the shape of the book cover, but it looks nice. When you go and you look at it, it's not going to show you just one card that takes up the whole width of a mobile device, which is where most people are going to look at this. It shows multiple cards. And I think that's a better view because it sucks when if there's a hundred books or more in the list and one book takes up almost the whole screen, that's a lot of scrolling to ask people to do. Whereas if it shows two or three books across, they can get through a lot more, a lot faster, and it becomes far more functional. The second thing about it is you can filter, like as a as somebody going to the page, just a public person going to the page, you can filter the list and search the list. You know, if you want to look at my list of all the books when it gets really long and say, well, just show me all the books that Kurt Vonnegut wrote and just type in Vonnegut, it'll pop up the three episodes that I did on Vonnegut. That's really great functionality for people. And I don't think there's anything out there that really compares with that other than creating a website. So because of playing with Notion, I did get that. So I'm, I'm happy with that. So what I did next is I started playing around with LogSeq. Logarithmic sequence, LogSeq. Yeah. So I started playing around with LogSeq. One of the things about LogSeq is it has some of the advantages of Obsidian. The files are on your computer. You own them. It's open source as well. Obsidian. I don't think Obsidian's completely open source. LogSeq is open source. What I did when I went into LogSeq is I remembered immediately something that I had forgotten and probably the biggest insight that I'm going to share in this episode, something I shared over on X actually, and a couple of you really engaged with this idea as well. There's something about block-based outliner apps and the idea of the daily page, you know, right here, we're talking about LogSeq, Rome research apps like this. There's something about them that's fundamentally different for me when I use them. When I start using the daily page, something about that block-based outliner format makes me fill my pages more. And when I said there was things I wanted to say about Obsidian, this is where I'm going to go back to it. One of the things about Obsidian and Heptabase and Notion as well, they're, when it comes to the writing experience, they're document-based. And something about the document base doesn't bring as much out of me as block-based outliners. You know, one bullet, one idea. Something about that, I end up filling these. I mean, just to prepare for this episode, I start to put down a whole bunch of ideas. I ended up with a ton of ideas just because of the structure of the way this works. I don't know why it's like that. I'm sure it's not like that for everyone, but for me... I had forgotten the value of daily pages in a block-based outliner. And I think what it is, I've been really trying to figure out what it is about this and why my brain engages with it this way and maybe why other people's do as well. When you work in a block-based outliner, you're working in bullets, you're working in indentations and so forth. So the first part is that indentation idea is really a handy way to fill things up and then you could just fold it and then move on to the next idea and then fold it. So you can keep kind of a visual compactness while still filling a page and not feeling overwhelmed with how much you have put on the page. So there's a ton of value in that. But then because most of these block-based outliners do block referencing, what that means is 
that one line, for example, in my notes right here, I have an outline that says, for some reason, I write so much more. Someday, maybe I'm going to be searching for the word reason. And I'm going to pull up a bunch of quotes about reasoning and go, no, that's not the context of reason that I mean right now. And that block, just those words, for some reason, I write so much more. That's going to come up and I'm going to go, what, what's that? I'm going to look at it and realize that it's in the context of block-based outliners and go, oh, that relates to what I'm doing. And now I can reference that block and bring it over. Now, the reason that's fundamentally different than a document-based app, I might find that in a document-based app. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find the word reason and just like I'm going to find everywhere I've used the word reason. Search is that good now that every app is going to do that. But it's going to pull it up in the context of paragraphs and I'm going to go over, okay, Sometimes you're lucky when you click over the app, you have highlights the word that you were just looking for. Sometimes it just kind of drops you at the right place in the page. Sometimes it just takes you to the document and you got to find it again. So you got to do search in document. Sometimes it doesn't have search in document, but in the best experience, you go right to that word and you go, yes. Now, what do you do? How do you take this idea in this document? Who knows how long this document is? How do you take that idea and bring it into the thing you're working in again? Now, if you're working in Evernote back in the day, all you did was, well, I guess I'm just going to have two copies of that. So I'm going to copy it and I'm going to paste it. Now I got it. Problem with that is you're not going to get any of that linking. You're not going to get any of that cross-pollination to understand how things connect to each other in surprising ways that you would like from a Zettelkasten. In Obsidian, you can fake a block reference. Sometimes. Now, remember that line has to be by itself. If you want to take that line, it has to be by itself. If you want to use that feature in Obsidian where it, it appends like a alphanumeric code afterwards, and then it references that somewhere else. If it's in the middle of a paragraph, you've either got to change your paragraph structure to be able to take that out, or you have to take the whole paragraph, which sometimes might be good, sometimes might not be. There's just more friction in it. So because of that, you start to think about how you compose your notes differently. Whereas in a block-based outliner, you just fill it up with whatever. And if you fill it up with garbage, it's fine. You're just never going to find that garbage again. You know, it doesn't matter. You just fill it up because the important parts are going to be the parts you're going to find, and you're going to pull those out when you need them. And you can pull them out right from where they are. No friction. And I think that's why it encourages me and other people to write in them more. Another thing about block-based outliners is it gets rid of one of my biggest frictions with Obsidian. Here's an idea. Let me put the idea into this document. Crap, now I have to name the document. Well, if the idea is already there, now you have to think of another way to say the idea just to title it. And it's gotta be descriptive enough that when you see the title, it's gonna be useful. I don't care about the title. I just want the note but now I have to give it a title. So do I just put like the first five words of this note? Do I create another version of it? Do I reword it? Friction. In a block-based outliner, there is no titling unless I decide I want to title something, which is not really titling it. It's just putting a bullet above it and indenting into it. The idea is the idea. It's already broken down to that minimum viable usability. So LogSeq reminded me of that. One of the things I like about LogSeq, a couple of the things I like about what they're doing, you can exclude pages 
from the graph view. Now you kind of do this in Obsidian. You know, go into, you go into the Obsidian graph view, and you can say, you know, you can create a search filter in there. Don't show me this page. Don't show me this page, which is usable. But if you have a lot of pages, like for example, in block-based outliners, one of the things about block-based outliners like Roam Research and LogSeq, when you create attributes, so like when you say author, and then, you know, obviously now you've created a field where you would put author afterwards, that becomes a page too. And all of those pages are going to show up in your graph view. But when you go into your graph view, your graph view is going to be clustered around all these attributes and all these tags, because in block-based outliners, tags and pages are no different. They're the same thing. So for me, who someone who writes a lot of notes about books, I go in and everything's around a central hub and that central hub is book. It's not really useful to me. It's not showing me how all of those are linked together. So I want to filter book out, but then I want to filter all the attributes out. And at a certain point, it becomes a pain in the ass in Obsidian. Whereas in LogSeq, you go to the actual page so for example, the book page, and you type in, exclude it from the graph view. And then you go to the other attribute, exclude it from the graph view. And you can exclude all of those things from the graph view. So when you go in, it's just going to show you the links and I mean the, the notes or the blocks and how they're linked to each other. Sorry, not blocks. Graph view doesn't show blocks. Graph view shows pages. It's going to show you how the pages are linked to each other. So that's a very cool feature. Another awesome thing about LogSeq, they have a whiteboard feature and their whiteboard feature is pretty cool. I actually really like their whiteboard feature. What I love about their whiteboard feature is search actually sees what's on the whiteboard as opposed to obsidian, which means whether I create a card or a text block, <laughs> whether I create something in the whiteboard or I bring one in either way, it shows up in search. So anything I put into a whiteboard, I can find in search. And it's going to pull it up as blocks. So if I put item one and then I put item A and A and B underneath item one in an outline structure, I can just pull out item A. I can just pull that block out just like I would anywhere else. So in that way, whiteboards function in LogSeq exactly the way pages do, except they're visual. That's very powerful. And it means you can block reference whiteboards, or you can reference whiteboards and you can block reference things in whiteboards. And the whiteboards also show up in your graph view. So you can treat them as pages, which is very useful for the way that I do my book notes and my topic notes. But ultimately I couldn't hang with LogSeq, unfortunately. So much that I like about it, but there were too many, too many little problems for me. First of all, the sync with iCloud, which is what I was using, it's not great. This, I don't know, I think it's mostly iCloud's problem, not necessarily LogSeq's. But there would be times when I would add stuff to my desktop computer, which is where I'm sitting now, and then I'd go later, hours later, when it should already have synced, and I'd open my phone, and it's not there. So then I have to go into the Files app and like click on the folder and just... I don't even know what worked. I did like five or six things before finally whatever synced it over, synced it over. So that's a problem. Also a problem that I had sync conflicts. I would type something into the mobile app and I hadn't been moving between devices. I was just sitting there. I'd type in something 
And then all of a sudden I get a sync conflict. I'm like, what am I sync conflicting with? I'm not using anything else. So both of those things together makes it really hard to trust the sync system using iCloud. Now that they have their own sync option now, it's in beta. I didn't try it out. I'm sure it works better than that. But at this point I was like, eh, maybe this isn't the best choice for me because there were other problems. For example, themes and plugins, no matter what solution you use, as far as I know, they don't sync. So plugins, yeah, you can kind of expect that plugins aren't going to sync to mobile, but they don't sync between devices either, computers. So my plugins on my desktop aren't syncing to my laptop. In addition, themes do not sync between devices and there are no themes available at all in the mobile app. So what this means is every time I sit down to a device, unless I meticulously do something, at least between the two computers, I'm going to sit down. Each of them is going to look different. Each of them is going to have different functions because I might not have all the plugins on one. And none of those things are going to be on the mobile. So that kind of, it takes a little bit of luster off of the sync. And there are just parts of the interface that are frustrating for me in the way that I use things. Oftentimes when you use a bullet-based outliner, like I said, it's great because you can collapse things. Well, sometimes you want to collapse things on a page and keep it collapsed. For example, like your link references on the bottom, you might not want to see those all the time, especially if it's a page you're not link referencing very often. So you collapse it. Problem with LogSeq is that state isn't consistent. So if I leave and I come back, it's not, it doesn't stay collapsed. It's re-expanded. So that's frustrating. It also seemed to do that with just things, outlines on the page itself. I would collapse an outline and then go to something else and come back and it would be expanded. I'm sure you could go in and tweak the code to fix these things. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not that person. That's not, that's not how I want to interact with my apps. I don't want to have to code in changes to do things. So ultimately, LogSeq, just like Heptabase and just like Notion, reminded me of important things on this journey. But what I didn't mention is all along as I've been using these apps, I've also been using Tana for capture. So Tana has their mobile app and all it does right now is capture, but like the voice memos, they use whisper from OpenAI, and it's near flawless voice transcription. So I find myself using that often. For example, with my newsletters, usually my first draft is through Tana voice capture. So while I was using all these, technically I was still using Tana. What I was just doing is taking the stuff out of Tana and putting it into whatever app I was using at the time. So what I decided to do was, well, Tana is a block-based outliner. And I've decided that I need to work in a block-based outliner. That's for sure. LogSeq is not going to do it for me. I don't have faith. Sorry to say this publicly, but I don't have faith in Rome Research as a company. So those two options are out. So maybe I should just start using Tana. So I started playing around with Tana again and Tana is so incredibly powerful. But one of the things that always put me off about Tana in the past is that power because I have a tendency to get caught up in over-organizing things, organizing things that don't need to be organized. You know, like creating a page for every person in my life that I put in here. I don't need to do that. Now, there might be certain people that are very important that I need to create a page for, but I can just find 
I say I have a cousin named Jim, and I talk about my cousin Jim four times in my entire graph. I don't need a page for Jim. I could just search for Jim, and it's going to show me all four times I mentioned Jim. But because that power is there, it calls to you. It's a siren song. So I have to be careful using Tana. And Tana's not perfect. For example, mobile is capture only. Though I will say I just watched their annual review video. And mobile is something that's coming. The full mobile is coming soon. I even saw a brief glimpse of the testing version of it. So that's that's good to know. It's not super important, but it is an important thing for me. Most, mostly I work at the desktop. But when I'm on the run and I need to remember a certain detail, yeah, that's going to be a good thing. Plus, they're going to be able to give access to the entire graph to AI soon. And there's going to be a lot of very interesting AI features. And they're a kind of company that I actually trust to do this the right way. Kind of like Heptabase. They have a lot of trust in both of these companies and the way that they think about things, the consideration that they put in everything they do, the detail that they put into everything to do. And I feel like sometimes more than features, that is a reason to hang in with an app because it's being captained in the right way. But Tana doesn't have any whiteboard features. And I don't think it's ever going to have any whiteboard features. I don't, I see, I voted for it on the suggestions, you know, the Tana ideas page. I think I was vote number 22, not likely to be implemented anytime soon. So what does that mean? Well, I think what it means is it gives me an excuse to continue to use Heptabase for what Heptabase is best at. I should be using Heptabase for what it's best at and Tana for what it's best at. So I can take my notes in Heptabase from the books and put them onto a whiteboard and do all the things I do until I and understand the book and the, you know the, my understanding of the book, the structure I want from the book. And when I pull that out, I can pull that out and put that into Tana. What that means is if I search for an idea in Heptabase, I'm going to find it in Heptabase when I'm using Heptabase. But it's also going to be in Tana for when I need it as well. One is going to be in a canvas structure and one's going to be an outline structure. The canvas structure is going to be in the app that's made for canvas structures. The outline is going to be in the app that's made for outline structures. To me, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. So I think that's what I'm going to do as far as using the apps for their strengths. The other thing about Tana is it doesn't have a graph view, which is not really that big of a deal. I don't use the graph view for much except for every once in a while looking at the local graph view to see uh, a different way of seeing what's connected. But there is one case where the graph view is extremely important to me, and that's the deconstructionist fiction project that I'm doing on Substack. It's called The Thing That Devours Everything. It's not a book. It was supposed to be a book. It's a fiction project that right now is moving in a linear fashion, a chronological fashion, but eventually is going to jump around and is going to, as I said, deconstructionist. So it's going to become something nonlinear. And the only way that I can keep track of that is to use Obsidian for that one project so that I can look at the graph view. So that's what I'm going to do with that one. Use that app for its strength as well. And then there's one thing that I don't really have a solution for. And I just, I think I'm just going to have to live with, which is my biggest frustration with Tana is that there are no soft returns. 
What I mean by that, if you don't know what a soft return is, is when you're on a bullet and you want to go down one line, but you don't want to create another bullet, you can't do that. So in other apps like um, LogSeek does it well, if you hit shift return, you get a new line, but it's a new line of the same bullet. So for say you wanted to write a haiku, a three-line haiku, in LogSeek, you would just write your first line, shift return, write your second line, shift return, write your third line, and your whole haiku is one bullet. So that whole haiku can be block referenced somewhere else. In Tana, each line of the haiku would have to be a separate bullet. So in order to block reference the whole thing, I'd have to block reference something that I put above it. Or what I've been doing for some things is oftentimes when people quote poetry in prose, you know, in a book, instead of showing the line break, sometimes at the end of the line, they'll just put a forward slash and then the next line and then a forward slash and then the next line. I've been using that. It's not the best solution, but the reason it's important is because my newsletters sentences for visual impact. But if I were to block reference that somewhere, I don't want just the first three lines of that sentence. I want the whole sentence. So in the case of what I would need to block reference something, it's not pretty to have those forward slashes in the lines, but that's what I want to, that's what I'm going to want to pull. I'm going to pull the whole idea. So I will just live with that for right now. And I don't, I know there's other people who have said things about long form writing in Tana. It seems like the team is kind of resistant to that just because of maybe what we don't understand about the underlying structure of how the nodes work. So I don't know, but I did say it was going to go long this episode. I feel weird about, I'm I'm, going to come clean here at the end. Having gone through all this, I feel weird talking about this stuff still. I don't know if that's strange, but I feel really insecure about doing this type of podcast because maybe because that's what's built into it, that this is play is, is not coming from a place of security. This is not coming from a place of expertise, but there's also a part of me that wonders, is this super boring? <laughs> and I guess I'll find out, but I feel like I need to get this stuff out. This is a, this is a byproduct that I need to do something with. And if you want to check out my newsletter, go over to creativeisolation.substack.com, which is going to be automatically linked because that's where this podcast lives. If you go there, you're going to find the newsletter. You're also going to find my other podcast, Reader Die a Slave, which is my podcast about books. And then if you're really adventurous, you can go over to thingthatdevours.substack.com, which will also be linked here. And that's my deconstructionist fiction project, which I've mentioned here. And you can also, I don't mention this in any of my other endeavors, but you can also find me on X. I'm at Curly Green. The reason I bring it up here is because generally it seems like I end up talking about this kind of stuff on X. Okay. Let me know your thoughts on this. Go over to the Substack, leave some comments. Let me know what you think. Hopefully uh, something in here was interesting or useful. If I'm really lucky, interesting and useful. Fingers crossed.